Okay, so we're carrying on in our study of Mark's gospel this morning. Let's um, just bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Well, Father, we thank you that, Lord, whenever we open the pages of Scripture, there is something there for us. Uh, The Lord, it is an inexhaustible well. The Lord refreshes us. It cleanses us. Lord, it, it gives us everything that we need. And so, Father, as we just turn to these verses this morning, Lord, speak to our hearts, we pray. Father, we need to be encouraged. We need to be edified and strengthened. Lord, we need to be challenged. Father, sometimes we need to be rebuked and corrected. Um, And Lord, your word does all of those things. So Lord, may we be open to whatever it is you have to say to us as individuals and as a congregation of believers here this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we got partway through Mark chapter 4. So we're going to pick up from where we left off. So up to verse 35. So all the things that we've, we've kind of previously seen, uh, we're not going to recap, we'll just go straight in because there's quite a few things to go through this morning. Uh, and, we, and the same day, uh, when even was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. So the events of the day, being as they are, as we saw and we went through and studied last time. Uh, but now Jesus' disciples, if, they were, if you remember Jesus was teaching in the boat on the sea, um, maybe they'd got out of the boat, maybe they'd get back into the boat, maybe they'd just stayed in the boat, we don't know. But Jesus says to the disciples, let's go to the other side. And this is quite interesting, because the only reason, seemingly, for this trip was that Jesus was being led of the Spirit to heal one person. And this entire event was all about Jesus going to seek and save that which was lost. And it's just a, a great example of the... I suppose in the lengths, in a sense, that, that God will go to just for, for one soul. Uh, and we see this great miracle that will take place. But the first thing we see there, we'll talk about a location in a minute, just so you get an idea of where they are. Um, but notice the words that Jesus says to them, let us pass over unto the other side. Okay, that's what Jesus says to the disciples that are in the boat with him. He doesn't say, let's see how far we'll get. Let's row out a little way and, and take a chance. He says, let us pass over to the other side. Jesus, in stating that, was pretty sure, certainly in his own heart and mind, that their destination was the other side, that nothing was going to stop them from getting there. Now, the reason I make that point is because you'll see in a moment that partway across, they run into trouble. And the disciples panic. And rather than referring back to what Jesus had said, they start to second guess, they start to doubt, they start to think about what they might be able to do or what should be done in this present circumstance because they'd forgotten the words of Jesus. And I just say that because so often we put ourselves in situations where we act out of faith because we forget to take hold of the words of Jesus. And they may be simple things. They may be just like this statement here. Jesus saying, let us pass over to the other side. You know, if they'd have just hold on to that, then there wouldn't have been the, the fear, the panic, and the doubt that we'll see in a moment. Just to give us some kind of context, uh, that's just a picture looking, you just about to see there, the, the area of C- C- Capernaum, which is where they'd made their base. You can see on the map down on the bottom left there, you just see a little kind of red balloon at the top of that. That's where Capernaum is right at the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, so they're kind of heading across somewhere now onto the east side 
uh, of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Um, Capernaum, there's, there's lots of history there. Some of you have had the opportunity to go to Israel. You've been there. You've seen it. Um, there's lots of uh, historical uh, things, uh, evidence, of course, of these things that took place in the days that we're reading uh, in the Gospel accounts. But we read on in verse um, 36. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took even him as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. So a number of these ships now kind of sail out with Jesus. So clearly what happened, this multitude, remember we said last time, the possibly, possibly the largest gathering, the largest crowd that up until this point had been amassed to come and hear Jesus speak. And so he gets into this largest ship and he's speaking back to those on the shore. But as often is the case, if you've ever been down to, uh, I mean, certainly Bournemouth, I've been down to when they have the air show, um, they get, a lot of boats go out and into the, the sea so they can kind of get a better vantage of what's going on. Seemingly the same idea here. People that had ships had gone out into their little boats around the boat where Jesus was. Uh, no doubt to listen to him speak. But now, as Jesus heads off across uh, the Sea of Galilee, these other ships seemingly start to follow him. But then verse 37 tells us, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. This isn't just an ordinary storm. Remember that we're dealing with fishermen that were largely the ones of the disciples who were used to being out on this sea. They encountered almost all kind of uh, experiences and so on on this lake, on this sea. Yet they're afraid. We read that he was Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said unto him, Master, carest not that we perish? See, again, they'd forgotten already those words that Jesus said that we're going to the other side. And they're worried that something's going to happen to them, that the water's coming into the boat, and these trained fishermen are fearful for their lives. Um, You know, sometimes we have things we build on, we have uh, our own securities in life, and sometimes those things are, are, are torn away from us. Sometimes the Lord allows those things just so that we come face to face with the reality that we aren't as strong or as capable or as able as often we think we are. And sometimes the Lord, by his grace, will bring us to a place where we realize how much we need him. Now, in a, a good sense, I suppose, that we see here, immediately they're in a problem situation, they go to Jesus. And that's obviously something that, that we should always do. Whatever there's a problem, whatever the circumstance, we should always go to Jesus. But, of course, their question is a, is a, a little... Lacking in understanding, isn't it? Carest thou not that we perish? Don't you care? Of course Jesus cares. All the things that they've seen so far, the miracles that they've seen taking place, the fact that Jesus had called these individuals by name, that he brought them into this group that was very close to him, was revealing secrets to them that he wouldn't reveal to the others. In the parables that he'd been teaching, he'd already said that these things are for you. And suddenly they forget all of that. And suddenly they're concerned that Jesus doesn't care for them. Isn't that a little bit like us? You know, we go through situations, we receive blessing from the Lord's hand, and then suddenly we have some problems occur in our life. And maybe, maybe the Lord doesn't care for us as much as we thought he did. And, you know, that, suddenly that, that human uh, propaganda starts to, to come in, and we start to convince ourselves that maybe we've got it wrong, or that God didn't love us, or we misheard, or, you know, And he arose and rebuked the wind. Nobody likes being woken up, and I guess even Jesus here 
um, being woken from his sleep. You know, he gets up. He doesn't rebuke the disciples for their lack of faith or for their concern that maybe he wasn't caring for them. He just gets up and rebukes the wind. It's interesting. It tells us straight away that this was some sort of supernatural event. We see so many of these kind of occurrences through Jesus' life and ministry, and of course all through the Old Testament, attempts by the enemy to destroy Jesus. You destroy the line that came down to the Messiah. And then, of course, once Jesus was born, starting really with the, the Herod and the babes in Bethlehem and so on, but all the way through, we see these little attempts. And this seemingly is just another one, this kind of supernatural storm, something that was out of the ordinary, that just blew up very, very quickly. But Jesus rebukes the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. You can just imagine the look on the disciples' face. You know, I mean, I'm not sure what they thought Jesus was going to do. I'm pretty sure it wasn't this. You know, they wake Jesus up. You know, don't you care that we're about to perish? What did they expect Jesus to do? They were hoping he'd going to get an oar and start rowing with them? Or, but I'm sure this wasn't what they thought was going to happen. And Jesus just rebukes the wind. Let's see. And suddenly everything's calm again. You know, that, that quote I've often said of Oswald Chambers, you know, that the Lord can change those trying circumstances in two seconds when he chooses. Sometimes the Lord will leave us in the storm just long enough for us to cry out to him. And then he says unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Just to challenge these disciples, just... Why were they afraid? They were with Jesus. They'd seen all the miracles that Jesus could do. They were starting to realize that he wasn't just a man. That this was God manifest in the flesh. Certainly when you read Matthew's gospel, and Matthew now amongst this group, when you read Matthew's gospel, you realize that Matthew had a really good understanding of the Old Testament. Matthew knew that the Messiah was coming. He was looking forward to the Messiah coming. And his whole gospel is presenting Jesus as the Messiah. You know, so they must have had some sort of understanding that the one in the boat with them was no ordinary man. Why are you so fearful? And of course, we find ourselves in circumstances in life where you know, suddenly we go from everything being okay to everything being just panic stations, don't we? We, we? we jump in these incredible extremes and then suddenly everything's okay and we're back to where we were. Or you know, We are very, very fickle, very quick to change. How is it you have no faith? Jesus has called these people by name. And we read in verse 41, and they feared exceedingly. Not because of the storm, not because of the sea, the wind, or any of those. That's now gone. But we thought they feared exceedingly. And said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So now there's, there's, there's their concern about the wind and the sea. That's all gone. And now their fear is, who is this man? Really, it's just clearly not just a man. What manner of man is the question they're asking. Well, that leads us on straight into the next chapter, chapter 5. And we read, And they came over to the other side of the sea. 
this is exactly what Jesus had said they were, were going to do. This is where he had said they were going. Into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately, and this is that word was said all the way through Mark's gospel, Mark gives us this immediately, immediately, straight away. Immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And we're told that he had his dwelling among the tombs and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. So this individual possessed some sort of supernatural, powerful strength. And we're told that, in verse 4, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, just to snap them. And the fetters broke it in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. I mean, this was a fearful character. People obviously no doubt very concerned and kept away from this individual. And so he's ended up making his dwelling amongst the, the tombs that were there. And as Jesus arrives, this individual comes to the shore to meet him. And we read, and always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. A really troubled individual. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran... So some up the hillside or wherever, and he sees Jesus getting to the shore and immediately recognizes who this is. Not because he recognizes Jesus' face or anything else. There's something spiritual. There's a spiritual component at work here. And he sees Jesus not in a human sense, but he sees Jesus in a spiritual sense. The spirit against spirit, as it were. And when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him interesting isn't it that we quoted the verse i quoted the verse earlier that you know one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord and we of course think of that in terms of of human beings and of course it's true in regard to human beings but every creature every principality every power is subject to jesus there is no power greater than jesus some cults and religions try to make jesus and satan on a par with each other as if they were in some sort of cosmic boxing ring sparring off in each corner and in one corner you have jesus and the other corner you have satan and there's this kind of struggle as to who's going to win satan is going to be consumed by the brightness of jesus that is coming there is no contest there's no battle some perversely suggest that Satan and Jesus were brothers. Of course, it's absolute nonsense. Jesus is God eternal, was there from the beginning, from before the beginning began. Satan is a created being. Yes, he was a powerful angel. But just a created being, nonetheless. Satan would have been one of those that sang when the foundation of the earth was being laid when all the the sons of god all the angelic realm worshipped god because of what he was doing but of course later satan then rebels because he doesn't get title to the earth which is what he wanted what he expected to be given thought he'd earned thought he deserved jesus and satan are on totally different levels jesus is god and this spirit now obviously a satanic spirit a demonic spirit coming now before jesus is compelled to worship jesus because of who jesus is 
It's interesting, isn't it? So many people in this world have their idea of when they get to heaven, what they're going to say to God, how they're going to give God a piece of their mind, and you know why God has not been fair or just, and so on. And you know that, that, that's nonsense. When people get before the throne, every example we see in Scripture is people just fall down as if they were dead. You know, no breath left in them, effectively. That's what it will be like for everybody when they stand before. For us, we'll get the privilege of standing before the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ. But for those that don't believe, they will one day stand before the great white throne. Well, this spirit falls down, worships and cries with a loud voice. Now, we don't know how many other people were around at this point. We certainly know, of course, the disciples were there. Maybe some of those in the boat that made it across the, the sea too. But he cries with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? It's interesting how often people say that, you know, the Gospels don't declare Jesus to be God. And some people try and use that as some case to say that Jesus was therefore a created being and so on. I mean, even from the mouth of demonic spirits, we have this bold statement that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. He is of the same substance as God. This Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. This spirit obviously recognizes. He says, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. He knew, this spirit knew exactly his destiny. And we're told that the reason this is stated, for he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. So this poor individual really has a problem, doesn't he? And we don't know, we're not told the details of how this situation came to be, how this man came to be possessed with these demonic spirits. But clearly something had happened. You know, if you don't have the protection of God through the Holy Spirit, if you don't have God's Spirit dwelling within you, you're in a very dangerous place. The people in this world are in a very dangerous place because they allow themselves to be opened up to all sorts of things. And sadly, we have a culture that is heavily into drugs and so on. And all sorts of different religious practices that are supposed to bring about some altered state of conscience. Yet all of those things open yourself up for oppression, possession even, from the satanic realm. And people just mock these things. They don't think it's true. They don't understand the reality of it. People that get into even things like yoga sadly and how sad it is that so many Christians and churches seem to think that it's okay you know one of the most popular venues for yoga classes seems to be church halls around the country it's incredible and they don't realize the danger that they're placing themselves in verse 10 and he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country It's interesting, we've talked about this before, that these spirits seem to be very largely centered on the land of Israel. 
This was their place of operation. This was what the whole original problem with these demonic beings was, that they wanted to try and stamp out the possibility of the Messiah coming, to stop the seed of the woman. And this is why in this area Jesus encounters so many. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that elsewhere in the world, even today, these things don't exist and people won't encounter them from time to time. But certainly in Israel at this time, we see a, a great number of these problems, these situations where people were possessed by demonic spirits. And we're told, verse 11, Now, there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. Pigs eating. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. This must be quite unnerving for the disciples. I mean, these situations are really... um, for us in the natural, they are quite scary. Because we're told there that all the devils besought him, saying. So we're not quite sure what the sound was, but you get the impression this was really a horrible noise that was coming out of this man's mouth as all these voices are basically saying the same thing. Send us into the swine. It's interesting, we said before, that angels don't need bodies to inhabit. Angels can appear in various forms, and we see that throughout Scripture. The two angels, for example, that appear at the Oaks of Mamre with Abraham when the Lord appears to Abraham. And they can appear in human form, and they don't have any problem with that. They don't search, they're not looking for bodies. Demons, on the other hand, are always looking for bodies. They seem to be, as we've said before, we talked about this in depth previously, the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, those that came up at the time of the flood, before the flood, that led to the flood, and then also afterwards when the, uh, the angels, the fallen angels, took the women of the earth and the offspring of these uh, beings that we're referring to now. They weren't human, they weren't uh, well, not fully human, they weren't fully angelic, these hybrid beings. Um, and so it seems to be that their departed souls are always seeking some sort of dwelling place. So the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith, Jesus gave them leave. Jesus grants this request. You see, it's not yet time for the judgment, for all of these beings to be confined to the eternal lake of fire. That will happen. So for now, Jesus grants permission. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. There are about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. Now, this is a strange situation because these demonic spirits are no better off because they've just now drowned. And seemingly, these beings drowned originally during the time of the flood, and now we see them in a similar situation here. We're told in verse 14 they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city. And in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. Now, there are some that suggest that around these areas there were some Gentiles. And I'm sure there were some Gentiles. But I don't believe that these were Gentiles. These would have been Jews. Jesus went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I don't believe that Jesus crossed over the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee to try and get to speak to Gentiles. This is a Jewish group of people. So the question is, what on earth were they doing looking after pigs in the first place? Why were they looking after these swine? Well, obviously their livelihood has just got into the sea. 
maybe serves them right for indulging in trying to make profit out of things that the Torah had said was unclean. But obviously it causes a real stir as they go back into the city and they say what's happened and people then come running out to see what was going on. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. It's strange, isn't it, that all the time he was in this state where he was a threat and violent and so on, they kind of seem to have resigned themselves to that and tolerated that. Now they see him clothed, sitting in his right mind. Now we're told they're afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. So the, there were obviously other people around that had actually witnessed this event and they share with those that have come up from the city what had happened and how this man is now sitting here perfectly normal, delivered by Jesus. And we're told, sadly, verse 17, they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. What a sad, sad situation. And how just indicative of the way that the world is. That Jesus comes, he comes across the, the sea, he delivers this individual, he sets somebody free. And the response is, no, no, we don't want anything to do with that. We don't like that. The first kind of glimmer of light that they'd, they'd had, and they reject it. And when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil uh, prayed him, that he might be with him. He says, Jesus, can I come with you? Can I follow you? Albeit, Jesus suffered him not. But saith unto him, go home to thy friends. Not sure who his friends were. It would seem maybe his friends hadn't been with him for some time because he'd been out living on the mountains and the tombs and so on. But those that he knew, those that were close to him, go home to thy friends, to your family, and tell them how great things the Lord has done for thee. And have had compassion on thee. And it is incredible because this whole trip, just seemingly for this one event, delivering this individual. What great compassion. And we're told, and he departed. That's it. That's the whole trip to the other side is over. He departed. It began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him. And he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue. Notice, one of the rulers of the synagogue. Do you remember this is back into the area of Capernaum? They've crossed back over to where they were. The synagogue where Jesus had been teaching for a number of weeks, the synagogue where he'd healed the man with the withered hand, where the rulers and the leaders have been trying to find fault with him, trying to catch him out. And now this individual, one of the rulers, possibly one of those rulers that have been trying to find fault with Jesus, Jairus by name, comes to him and he says, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Once again, it's interesting how circumstances can just wash away any of our 
preconceived ideas or any of our prejudices. You know, you may have found it before that people will mock you because they know you believe in Jesus. But the moment they are in trouble, who will they come and ask to pray? You know, I've seen it a number of times that people at at work have said to me, they've been in situations, you know, and I've offered to say, would you like me to pray for you, for your situation? And immediately people will say, oh, yes, please. You know, another time that they'll mock, they'll, they'll laugh at what I believe. But when people are in a predicament, how quick they are to cry out for any form of help. And of course, they recognize their own frailty in those types of situations. So Jairus, one of the leaders of the synagogue, comes out, falls at his feet, and verse 23 says, And besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. So now we get to the, the real issue here. This is why whatever he thought about Jesus two days before. Because, again, just two days ago, Jesus was there. Jesus was in Capernaum. Jesus had been in the synagogue. And and this little girl, seemingly, we're not told the details, but she probably didn't go downhill that quickly within the space of just a few hours. So he could have come to Jesus at any time and say, my little girl's not very well at the moment. But he gets to this point and he says, my little daughter lies at the point of death it's now got so serious that he's crying out i pray thee come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed she shall live once again just at that point of desperation doesn't care now what the other leaders in the synagogue might say what their view or opinion of jesus is what the Pharisees that have come down from Jerusalem would say, doesn't matter. Now this is something so much more important than that. And Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. Just a great crowd of people around Jesus. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse. We'll carry on in a second. What we find is that this woman had this condition that had started at approximately the same time that Jairus' daughter was born. What's the connection? Maybe we'll comment in a moment about one possibility. Jairus' daughter somewhere in the region of about 12 years old. This woman here has been suffering for, for 12 years. And we're told that she's spent all the money she had. You know, because of this issue of blood, she would have been ceremonially unclean. She would have not been able to enter into the temple if she'd have gone down to Jerusalem. She wouldn't have been able to bring offerings and so on. The law was very specific about these type of things. She was very much an outcast. But we're told in verse 27 that when she'd heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. There's a multitude of people everywhere. And she kind of works her way through the crowd. She's desperate. For 12 years, she's had this medical problem that none of the doctors have been able to help with. They've been happy to take her money, but no one's offered any solution or made her better. Because this is what she said to herself, verse 28. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. What great faith. You see, she no doubt had seen and heard 
of the miracles that have been taking place, the things that Jesus had been doing in this area. And she's desperate, just like Jairus is desperate for his daughter. And both of them have come to that place in their predicament that they know they need Jesus. Well, look, straight away this morning, folks, this is something we need to realize. When people are desperate, they will look to Jesus. Only they know to look to Jesus. And what a great opportunity we have in the days in which we're living in. People are becoming more and more desperate day by day. People are in predicaments that they've never been in before. You know, the, the world is just twisted, it's upside down. And what a great opportunity for us to preach the gospel. We were talking a couple of weeks back now at our midweek meeting about how to share the gospel. And we were just talking about really the simplicity of the gospel itself. Just the power that is in the gospel. Just turn with me, if you will, just to the beginning of Corinthians because it's worth just refreshing our memories with this. This is the portion we looked at in that study. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is after Paul has come down from Athens from debating with the philosophers on Mars Hill and so on. And some degree of success had come out of that. But seemingly Paul has had this opportunity to, to think a little bit about the conversation that he'd been having with his philosophers. I mean, it, it would have been a great argument that he put forward. But verse 17 says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, not with wisdom of words. You know, Paul, more than anyone, could have argued with the wisdom of words. He could have trapped people with his wonderful rhetoric and his understanding of history and poetry and all sorts of things. I mean, he'd been brought up under Gamaliel. He was a very well-educated man. Or he could have tied people in knots with his arguments. But he says... I didn't come to preach with the wisdom of words. He says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. You know, if Christianity was based upon us being able to intellectually understand and reason and everything else, then it puts it very much in the realm of those that are academically blessed. But that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't just for the intellectual. The gospel is for everyone. He says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The world sees the the gospel, the, the message that we preach, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. According to the scriptures, the world just sees it as nonsense. They don't understand it. But we realize that that in itself is the power of God. It goes on, it says, but it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Paul kind of puts this out there, you know. Okay, let's bring in all the wise. Let's bring in the scribes, bring in the disputers. Let's stand them up. Let's see what they've got to say. Because God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. It's incredible the things that the world holds onto claiming itself to be wise. It says, verse 21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. There we are. Foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
For Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it goes on. It's a great chapter, great portion of scripture. But it's simply the preaching of the cross. It's the gospel. It's so simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. We don't need to make it complicated. But in this account here, we have two individuals, both Jairus and this lady, that come to Jesus because they recognize their own predicament. They recognize they're powerless to do anything about it. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard that Jesus can save, can heal. And so they come to him. Verse 28 again. For she said, if I may touch his clothes, I shall be whole. And straight away, the fountain of her blood was dried up. She knew physically something had changed. And she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. The relief she must have felt at that instant. For 12 years, she's been struggling with this. And in this instant, she knows she's healed. She doesn't have to go to a doctor and say, can you do a check and see? She just knows. There was some sort of physical feeling, a confirmation she just knew. Touching the hem of Jesus' garment. It's interesting. It's a great kind of little study. It's a study that Joy did many years ago for a uh, ladies' meeting she led back in Deal. And um, I was fascinated when she was digging in some of the stuff that she kind of uncovered. But you go through all the scripture looking at hems and where they're used. And hems and the, the, the hem of the garment always speaks of authority, certainly for, for the Jews. You know, they would attach the pomegranates and all sorts of other things around the hems of the garments. And, you know, it's very much like in a, a military uniform, you'd have stripes on the uniform to signify rank. Also, the Pharisees and so on would have various things around the bottom of their garments. And they'd enlarge the, the bottom borders of the garment, signifying how important they were. And so she's reaching out, recognizing his authority, recognizing who he is. It's a real humble act on her part to reach out and touch, to recognize his authority. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, he recognized that this healing power had, had gone. Even this is interesting, isn't it? That Jesus didn't speak any words. He didn't say anything. Nothing had to be done. There was just faith on her part as she reached down and touched Jesus. And she was healed just by touching the garment. Jesus turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And you can imagine the disciples, you respond. Verse 31, the disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and you say, Who touched me? Like, seriously? Everybody's touching you. He said, No, no, no. no somebody touched me specifically. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. Seemingly, this woman may have finally been starting to move away or whatever, but as he's looking around, suddenly they make eye contact. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. Now, just to pause here, because at this point, Jairus is probably getting quite anxious. Thinking, Jesus, please, can we get going? My daughter's really not well, and I want you to come. And he said unto her, to this woman, daughter. Jairus is thinking, yeah, my daughter, can we please go? But... 
because we are always in a hurry, aren't we? We're always rushing. We've always got a deadline to meet. Jesus is never in a hurry. God's never in a hurry. God is outside of time. Jairus can wait just for a moment. And he said unto her daughter, Thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace. And be whole of thy plague. Be healed completely. It's a wonderful thing. It's interesting, you know, you look through the miracles, you're not going to find a formula. You're not going to find something we can then replicate. You know, we can put it down on a sheet and... All of these miracles, they're all different. You know, the, the individuals that brought the, the man on, on the stretcher, we don't know the faith of the man that, that was being brought. We know that his friends had faith. The, the demoniac didn't even know what was going on, or that the one was possessed. He didn't know what was going on, seemingly. And yet he's healed. This woman is healed because of her faith. The man who was in the synagogue, it wasn't really about faith. He was just standing there. He just seemingly was going to the synagogue every week. And Jesus picks on him and says, stand up, stand in the middle, and then stretch out your hand. And he does, and it's healed. And in all of this, the one thing that links every one of these things together is grace. God's grace. And we're told, while he yet spoke, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Rabbi, the, the teacher, Jesus. Don't, don't trouble him anymore. But as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. Now, at this point, Jairus is probably just an emotional wreck. I mean, just imagine. I mean, I've got a 10-year-old daughter that's about to be 11 and almost this age. Of course, Esther's this age. That's the, the, the age of the, the child here. And this, this dad must have been just heartbroken just to hear that news. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid, believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeing the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. Now, they had professional mourners in this day. People that would be brought in, that they would grieve and wail. This is what they did. And when he was coming, he said unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. They suddenly stop all this wailing and they start laughing at Jesus and they start scorning him. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, those disciples, and entered into where the damsel was laying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, now notice she doesn't have great faith to be healed at this point. She's dead at this point. So it's not her faith. And he said unto her, Talitha Kumai, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straight away, mark that word again, straight away, the damsel arose, walked. And she doesn't just kind of sit up, she gets up, and then she starts walking around the room. For she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with great astonishment. 
Just imagine the joy that suddenly filled that room. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it. And he commanded that something should be given her to eat. You know, those professional mourners outside would look pretty stupid as the family then come down from the, the bedroom. And they come out into the, no doubt, the open courtyard. And these professional mourners who a few moments ago have been mocking Jesus suddenly looking pretty silly themselves because she is alive. You know, there isn't one formula for any of these miracles other than, as I said, it's grace, it's Jesus. You know, each of us have to look to Jesus for everything. You know, just as the disciples at the start of this, we were looking in the in the boat. They need to look to Jesus. It doesn't matter how intense the storm is. We need to look to Jesus. It doesn't matter how desperate the situation is with the woman, woman with the issue of blood or with Jairus, his daughter about to die. Jesus is the only solution. Jesus is the only one that we can go to. And we have a mandate to tell the world, to tell those around us that they need to go to Jesus. Because Jesus delivers. Jesus will put an end to the storms. Jesus will bring life where there was no life. Jesus will heal the hurt and the pain of years if we come to him. Let's bow our hearts. Father, this morning I just pray that for each of us you will speak to our hearts through these verses, through these accounts that Mark recorded for us, that Mark was so taken by in understanding Jesus, understanding this one who he'd come to know and to love, the one he wanted to reveal to the world. And Lord, as we read in Mark's account of these things, help us to realize that our focus simply needs to be on Jesus and that we need to encourage everyone that we know to look to him too. Father, thank you for these things. Impress them upon our hearts, we pray, that we would keep growing in knowledge and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this week. We continue, Lord willing, Mark's Gospel next Sunday.